How do you feel great on vacation? Like really good? Easy, you go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool white sand beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll immerse yourself in natural wonder and find your center on an island where things move at your speed. You won't just feel great, you'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9, with available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults, with zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute and available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. At Popular Science, we report and write dozens of science and tech stories every week. And while a lot of the fun facts we stumble across make it into our articles, there are lots of other weird facts that we just keep around the office. So we figured why not share those with you? Welcome to The Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week from the editors of Popular Science. I'm Sarah Chardash. I'm Claire Maldarelli. And I'm Lexi Krupp. Uh, Rachel is out this week again, uh, so unfortunately you are stuck with all of us instead of the lovely Rachel. Um, (laughs) Before we get started, I just wanted to remind you that we have a live show coming up on September 14th at 6.30 p.m., Uh, at Caveat in New York City. So if you are in New York City or you'll be visiting New York City or you live within a short drive of New York City or any of the above, um, buy your tickets. We have links on our Facebook page and on our Twitter, which is weirdest underscore thing. It's going to be awesome. There will be games. There will be fun. There will be a lot of weirdos, but you'll be in good company because you are probably also a weirdo. Uh, So come join us. We would love to see you. You can see us in person. It'll be wild. We're that much cooler in person. Yeah, we are. You just, you won't like, even believe. Do you think believe. we're cool now? Yeah, it's, it's going to be great. Here on The Weirdest Thing, we start with a little tease of what our weird fact is, and then we decide which one we have to hear first, and then everyone spins their little yarns, and then we vote, and then it's all a good time, and you enjoy yourself. I'm going to start. Woo! Okay. Mine is about a group of people who were tasked in the 1940s to figure out how to get housewives to serve more organ meat to their families. Oh, my God. Yep. (laughs) Claire, you want to go next? Okay. If you are a super fit person, do you sweat more or less than (gasps) if you are a super unfit person? Oh, my God. Spoiler alert. I asked Claire this question, or I think I said, like, (laughs) I think this might be true, but I don't know, and I was too lazy. You don't know the answer. I don't know the answer, because I was too lazy to look it up, and Claire bothered to do the research. Wow. I did did a lot. Well, I'm really... a lot about sweating along the way, I bet. I heard sweat. Yeah. Wow. Okay. I'm very excited for that. Lexi? My fact is about the largest area in the world to ban dogs and why the dogs are probably happy about it. That's that's such a specific category, largest place to ban dogs. Wow. Oh, my goodness. I mean, to be honest, I want to learn about sweat, but... I want to learn about organ meat. We're divided. Lexi, you have to vote sweat. for one. Okay, sweat. there you go. Sweat it is. Ooh. A few weeks ago, Sarah and I were trying to decide if people who are, like, runners or just do a lot of exercise are really good in the gym at you know, pumping weights and whatnot, do they, they seem to just, like, sweat a ton. So, 
I was like, what factors determine how much sweat you make? Because I am definitely at the elite 1% of sweaters. <laughs> Some people do sweat more than others, and there's a variety of different reasons for that. And I'm going to list them all for you and tell you cool studies and then answer the question that's burning Sarah and I's brains. I just like, I just need, I want a validating reason that I sweat so much and like I'm that person who when I do push-ups at the end I have to like put down a towel in front of my head because I'm dripping sweat at that point like that's me and that's embarrassing and I just want I just want a good <laughs> oh, reason same. the first thing that I found out was that men actually do sweat more than women so this is not helping my cause but <laughs> um <laughs> There are a bunch of studies done on this, but one of the better ones where they took the same group of men and women at a similar fitness level and they put them on these stationary bikes and they had them bike at a similar pace and they um, tested two different things. First, they analyzed how many sweat glands they had and they were able to determine how much sweat was being produced from those sweat glands. How did they do and then, that? Did they have, like, vials collecting their sweat? Right. So they actually, every five minutes, they would collect the amount of sweat that was on like their they, backs. Like, they scraped it. Oh, my God. Think yes. of the poor, probably, grad student who had to do that. <laughs> um, and they found that um, men did sweat more than women, so the vials collected were larger for men, but... Um, it wasn't because uh, the women's like sweat glands weren't working or they weren't um, as activated. Women had just as many sweat glands activated as men. It's just that men's sweat glands were just like profusely dripping out of them. Do um, they know why? So that's a huge question in like the sweat research science out there that they really the sweat community <laughs> the sweat community that they don't really understand why but they do think it could be a sort of like a beneficial survival mechanism on both the men's parts and the women's parts for the men the and I'll get into this a little bit later for men if in general, the more you sweat, the lower your body temperature, so you're able to cool yourself off. So for that, that's a survival mechanism. But then for women, um, if you sweat less, then you're keeping that water in, so you're not literally dehydrating yourself, such that after you do these activities, you don't need to like immediately replenish with water or else die. So both so of them are sort of survival mechanisms in themselves, but they don't know why women develop this one versus men developing the other one. Wow. So you and I are just like... So this is, we went yeah. with the male we went, route, apparently. <laughs> we did. And there's been actually a couple other studies on um, whether it's like hormone-based, so if like testosterone helps you to sweat more. And one of the studies they did is they gave um, men actually estrogen and found that they sweat less when they were given estrogen. So maybe estrogen is like oh, a, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's there's one reason. Okay. And we've got another... That's not val it's not validating for me yet, so it, we need to keep going. Not. Okay, well, well, this one is probably going to be validating, but I don't think you'll like it. It's just simply a genetics thing where some people just have more sweat glands than others. And they did this huge study where they measured the number of sweat glands on various people of different sizes and whatnot. And they found that some people have as few as 2 million sweat glands, whereas others have as much as 4 million. Wow, that's impressive. Mm -hmm. So it's just completely unfortunate and unfair that some people have more sweat glands than others. Or I maybe think it's I might unfair even have that some people have less sweat glands. That maybe is sweating, true. You know, see, I mean, it is a problem if you can't sweat. 
because you can't lower your body temperature. I mean, that is a huge problem, and that's... Um, well, just brings us right to the next one. Wow. Where <laughs> what, a, what a beautiful <laughs> narrative sweep. Starting at around age 60, we actually start to sweat less. So as you reach your... So there's some hope for me. <laughs> <laughs> but it's also a bad thing, right? Because um, a, a lot of elderly people are at a bigger risk for heat stroke because they simply can't cool themselves down. And if you um, oh, can't be in like a uh, air-conditioned environment, you're at a higher risk. And as... Obviously, temperatures continue to rise, and we have these extreme heats like we do now um, in New York. This summer has just been insane that it's going to be extremely dangerous for elderly people because they just can't cool themselves off to a certain extent. Wow. So, And there's all those, like, old athletes who are killing it, but they can't sweat as much. So maybe they need a lot of, like, I don't know, they need to just, like, run marathons in cooler climates. That's true. Or they need to, like, move to cooler climates and know that, well... Their bodies are just not just not ready for this yet, or anymore. The next sweat fact of the day is uh, not everyone is a perfect ninety-eight point six degree body temperature. Um, so, fun fact: a few years ago, former associate editor Sarah Fact and I used to measure our body temperatures every single day (laughs) with this new thermometer that you would put on your forehead. And Sarah Fecht has a core average body temperature daily of 100 degrees Fahrenheit. Wow. Um, Was she always warm? She was always warm. When we first started to do this, she actually thought she was sick and went home early. She was like, I have a fever. (laughs) And then as it turns out, she just has a fever every single day. But it's just normal for her, so it's not technically a fever. And that all has to do with, like, our hypothalamus, and um, which is, like, our body's internal thermostat and and how that works. And it's sort of, like, genetic-based what your average core body temperature is going to be. So the higher our internal body temperature is, the more we will sweat. So Sarah is just going to sweat more than other people because... Maybe this is a Sarah thing. <laughs> um, uh, it, I, my core body temperature is actually like a little bit lower. It was like 97 something. So I don't know why I'm sweating so much. Wow. But, but it is true that like, because this is... I've never measured my body temperature every day, but this has always been one of my theories that I just like, I run very warm. Like any mm. every room I'm ever in... I am too warm and other people are too cold. And in our office, constantly, Claire and also often Mary (laughs) Beth are like, it's really cold in here. And I'm like, no, this is a perfect temperature. My fingernails are turning purple and I can't type. And Sarah's like, this is ideal environment for me. I am the person, like my AC is set to 65. (laughs) And I love it. Okay, so... This is what I found out as to if people sweat more when they are more fit. And it turns out that they absolutely do. Oh, my God. (laughs) I am so validated. Thank you. Um, And it has to do with the fact that as someone becomes more fit, his or her body begins to sweat at a lower body temperature such that they are able, they adapt themselves to be able to... um, just perform these extreme levels of exercise because they like their bodies become better at sweating at lower body temperatures do we know why like do more sweat glands become active or is it just a lower activation temperature it's a lower activation temperature but it's a huge question and area of research right now as to what the mechanism that does that is and whether we can sort of like hack it to be able to help people who don't sweat as much and are more prone to heat exhaustion or heat stroke than others 
Wow. So it's beneficial because you can exercise without overheating. Right. Because say you're a person that just doesn't sweat that much and you go to run a marathon and it's really hot outside, Mm -hmm. you are going to likely go into heat stroke because sweating cools down and lowers your core body temperature. So if you're not sweating, you're going to increase your core body temperature and then um, be at risk for heat stroke. I'm so happy that I can now tell this to people. Anyone who questions my sweatiness that's, when it's like eighty it's degrees I'm fit. out. That's exactly yeah. yes. I just I just work out so much <laughs> that I sweat uh, instantly it's, now. It's because I work out. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Do you know how you can stop yourself from sweating? Oh, please do tell us, Sarah. You can get Botox injections. Oh, I knew that. What? <clears throat> yeah, yeah, because Botox inhibits your nerves' ability to send signals to that area. And so Botox, like if you get, you can get Botox. This is a thing that people do. People get Botox injections in their armpits, mm-hmm. and you stop sweating from your armpits because, like, you just you can't send the signals to say like, "Hey, start sweating." Oh, do they do that specifically not to sweat anymore? I yeah, because I think, I think so, there's yeah. people who just like sweat a ton out of their armpits, like so much that it becomes like a really super <laughs> embarrassing and frustrating. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and like psychologically frustrating. I think, but. But My I think point all- is that we should yeah. embrace it. Like, yeah. they're evolutionarily better adapted than <laughs> us. Because also, they sew in sponges to their clothing. yeah. Because also, I think there's one. probably a lot of people who are just very concerned that it's embarrassing. Like that other people find it really off-putting, mm-hmm. which like mm-hmm. is unfortunately probably true because we're not we're a society that doesn't like. When people's bodies act like bodies, but that's so unfortunate. Mm-hmm. I feel I w- like we should change the conversation now. It's like it's just gonna get hotter out there. And yeah, embrace the sweat. Embrace the sweat. I agree. I'm behind this. We are going to take a quick break and leave this room to get some air because I'm already sweating. It's very hot in here, Same. and we will be right back. At Outdoor Life Magazine, we've never been easy on the gear we test which is precisely why you can trust the gear we make. Introducing Guide Life, performance products and apparel designed with the editors of Outdoor Life. Made for backpackers, campers, hunters, and anyone who enjoys the outdoors. And like any great adventure, this one starts at base camp. The collection includes tents, lanterns, duffels, sleeping bags and pads, and more. Available now on Amazon and olguidelife.com. We are back, and we are going to dive into a big old bowl of organ meat. So my little story begins in 1941. New York restaurants are serving horse meat in their burgers because there is a national problem, which is that people who are fighting wars, specifically World War II, need to have meat. And so all of the good, conveniently shippable meat is going off to Europe. Not all of it, actually, like, for the record, rationing in America was much less severe than pretty much anywhere else in the world. But (laughs) Americans were real pissed off that they couldn't have their proper burgers, and there was a poultry black market, and this is when (laughs) Meatless Mondays became a thing and Wheatless Wednesdays. Like, the whole thing was, you know, you were supposed to be patriotic and, like, eat less meat and eat fewer eggs and, like, all these things to help win the war. And President Hoover said that meats and fats are just as much munitions in this war as are tanks and airplanes. And so the Department of Defense recruited a bunch of sociologists, psychologists, anthropologists, and they formed the Committee on Food Habits. Margaret Mead was one of the the principal leaders, and under her leadership, the committee published like more than 200 studies about 
eating habits and how you get people to change their eating habits hmm. because I don't know how founded this concern was. There was basically a concern that there was just like not enough protein and Americans were going to suffer. That's probably not true, but especially given like that intense exercise was not super widespread. And mm-hmm. if it was, it was amongst young men who were fighting a war, not at home, but they were concerned and they decided that the way they were going to solve that was by getting Americans to eat more organ meats because Oof. That was the part that nobody so wanted. Was organ eating organ meat not popular at all? Like they, it no was one so ate it, unpopular or? that during the Great Depression, butchers gave away liver for free. What? Oh my god! Because gosh. no one wanted to buy it. Um, this is it. Should be pointed out, like an American yeah. thing. It's, it's to some extent also a like Western European thing, but Americans are very squeamish generally about organ meats, as evidenced by by Claire, Claire. and, and also American. almost everyone else I told about this too. But um, all right, Sarah, help me change my ways. All right, so um, wait. Okay, we should first wrap up the committee on food habits uh, because basically what they found was like Americans think that organ meat is weird. And it's unfamiliar, and you don't know how, like, you have a liver. How, what do, how do you cook a liver? What do you do with it? What, what do you do with the kidney? How are you supposed to cook a heart? Is it even good? Nobody knows. Um, so the way that they decided they needed to tackle the problem was to basically figure out how to make organ meat feel more familiar. Mm. And in World War II era America, the solution was to go to the housewives because the housewives basically made all of the decisions about what to eat. their families ate. And they gathered groups of housewives together and they tested different ways to convince housewives to serve, you know, kidney. That's crazy. By the end, there was a, there were like only a couple studies about sort of the popularity of organ meat. I tried to find more statistics, but one study found that organ meat consumption was up 33% during the war, and by 1955 it was up 50%, which is a lot considering that no one even wanted liver for free in the Great Depression. Oh, wow. Organ meat's actually, like, very nutritious. I think there's generally an idea that they're not healthy for you. Yeah, I'm super interested in this because I had always thought that, like, organ meat, it's, like, it's fatty or it's full of cholesterol and all of those things added up over time if you're just pounding down the liver every day. Pounding down the liver. So first of all, I mean, they're generally very high in vitamins. I mean, Lexi talked in a previous episode about how when you have polar bear liver, your skin peels off because you, you overdose on vitamin A. That's how much is in a polar bear liver. But all liver is high in vitamin A. Like to the extent that because vitamin A can cause birth defects, so pregnant women are advised not to eat very oh, much liver because if you have too much, like it's a much lower dose that can give birth defects than will give you any problems. Which I thought I I had never heard that of all the like pregnant women shouldn't eat this. Yeah, never heard liver. Chop liver. Yeah. Um, doesn't it also have iron too or something? Yeah, I mean a lot of organ meats tend to be like very high in iron, very high in like vitamin D, E, K, A. Um, they are also high in cholesterol. So I looked this up because I know, obviously, there's a huge debate about eggs. Like, eggs are very high in cholesterol, mm-hmm. and so for a long time, the advice was if you are at risk of heart disease, you shouldn't be eating eggs because they're high in cholesterol. But the reality is that like most of the research now suggests eating cholesterol does not actually raise your cholesterol by very much at all huh. because taking in a lot of dietary cholesterol just causes your body to make less of it on its own. So not a problem, apparently. I mean, 
Yeah, that's super interesting because it was like a debate for a long time. And I think yeah. it's cool that we sort of know the mechanism a little bit more now because we were just like, actually, eggs are fine, it turns out. but Yeah, eggs are great. I have a theory that eggs are the only real superfood mm. because they're high in just like an enormous number of vitamins. They've got lots of protein. They've got good cholesterol. It's all good. The thing about organ meats is they, they do not have the texture of most muscle meat because they're not – well, the heart is muscle, but it's very – fibrous, thick muscle, but most other organs are not muscle or they're partly muscle. And so they have very different textures and texture is a huge thing for people. Like Mm -hmm. it's why I hate avocados because they have a weird texture to me. Uh, So it's hard to get people to get past that. But it's also true that if you don't know how to prepare any of those foods, then you're likely to misprepare them and have them be a terrible texture. Um, so for a lot of like organ meat first timers like myself, and I'm sure a lot of <laughs> listeners yeah. here don't regularly eat organ meat as part of their like, you know, eating diet cycle. Um, what would you recommend on how to like kickstart an organ meeting diet, an organ meeting, organ meeting, organ meeting diet? I would go pate. Although oh, there are moral objections to pate that are perfectly valid, and I am amenable to, and just a callous, cold-hearted human being, pate foie are. gras like those are those are organ meats that have fancy names, and so you don't say liver when you order it, and so it feels better to not oh, say it. It's like you know, is the texture? It's like very pate. cream cheesy. <laughs> yes, it's very like dense, so you can't you cannot eat a lot of it. Okay, I okay. love liver, and I cannot eat a lot of it because okay. um, it is very rich. And they do because it tends to be higher in iron. It does tend to have kind of an intense flavor. Mm-hmm. It's like pigeon is very high in iron. Like the muscle meat is high in iron, and a lot of people don't like how pigeon tastes. Squab, you see it as squab on a menu. Interesting. Maybe but, not you. Oh, people eat. Lexi pigeon? is looking at me. Like, <laughs> Yeah, um, Eleanor, our our lovely editorial assistant, wrote a great article about people eating pigeon and how that's making a comeback. Pigeon used to be very popular. Great. She hated it. She tried it, (laughs) and she thought it was awful. I like it. I've yet to meet a meat that I didn't like. There are, like, a couple of health risks... Can you tell everyone what the name of the article that you're... The name of this article, it's on on Eater. Um, The Awful Eater's Handbook, awful, O-F-F-A-L, just for the record, awful is like organ meats. Mm -hmm. The Awful Eater's Handbook, Untangling the Myths of Organ Meats. It goes through all the organs. There are a lot of organs I didn't think people ate. I feel like I need this handbook if I'm really going to get into it. Um, Lungs. You cannot eat lungs in the U.S., apparently. The USDA outlawed them because there's like a very slight chance that if the animal has, like, tuberculosis or some other kind of pulmonary disease, that you could get that disease from eating it. Because tuberculosis sort of sits in In the the phlegm phlegm for a long time. It can, like, remain dormant and then come back. Um, So you can't eat lung, but as far as I can tell, you can eat almost all of the other parts. Um, Brain is the one that people get freaked out by because of prion diseases. Mm -hmm. Um, It's like if you don't know, prions are just misfolded versions of your normal brain proteins. Mad cow disease um, is a prion disease, and Mm -hmm. they are truly terrifying because there is no cure. And And we don't really understand how they work yet. No. I wouldn't eat animal brains personally. There's prion diseases in, like, goats and sheep and cats Mm -hmm. and all these other kinds of things. Okay, so brains out. Yeah, but people do eat them in scrambled eggs, which is... (laughs) An upsetting texture to imagine because the brain is the fattiest organ. Mm. So it's very 
gooey and gelatinous. Oh, goodness. Um, Mixed in with the yeah. only superfood. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for validating that. Uh, I mean, the most common ones are like, so blood, like blood sausage or black pudding. Okay. I've had black pudding. Did you like it? Absolutely not. <laughs> I thought the texture was just bizarre. And then to be 100% honest, I didn't really know what it was. I've had blood sausage. I bought it from a, like an, a Spanish import store in New York. It was, I liked it, but it was definitely a flavor. Yeah. It was a very particular flavor that I have never tasted anywhere else before. You definitely need to get used Wait, to it. Wait, is it like sausage filled with blood? What it, is it? It is blood. It's it is coagulated, coagulated blood. blood. That's it. That is all. In a casing. If you're, like, low in iron, it's really good yeah, for you. That, yeah. yeah. I could probably use some. Right. Yeah. You definitely like can't eat a lot of it either. You know, blood might be a little intense for you. Don't go with that for your first organ meat. Um, I would go bone marrow. I don't oh, know if you guys have Is had that considered organ meat? Because I've had bone, bone marrow. I had bone there you marrow. Go. Oh, my we God. We are all <laughs> organ meat eaters. Yeah, I have bone marrow is delicious. Yeah. Why have you had bone marrow? Well, when I was, like, 10, uh, oh, very I was adventurous at a Jamaican, 10. you know, restaurant, and there was bone marrow. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'm a big fan of asabuco. Asabuco is really good, and that's, that is bone marrow. Um, I also found out that you can eat the face. Of animals, which oh. is called, which is what head, okay. which is what head cheese is. Head which, cheese. It's not such a bad name. You like boil the head for a long time, and all the connective tissue just like becomes gelatinous. I'm and it dying. Sticks together. I'm so sorry. Why cheese? Like cheese is such I a know. good I product. <laughs> and head cheese. The fact that they called Why it call that. Call it that. Yeah. Um, people eat eyes. I've, oh, I knew that. Which is, it seems like an unpleasant texture to me, but lots of people eat them. Okay, so could you theoretically eat an entire animal? Or? I think you could eat pretty much the same thing. And this is... Oh, like a mammal. Yeah. I think you could come very, very close. Like, mm-hmm. there's even a listing for tendon in this article. But I didn't know that you could eat tendons. steer clear of the brain, basically. That's it. Yeah, and I mean, the realistically, lungs. the risk is and very small. And the lungs, small. And yes. the lungs, Yeah. But pretty much the rest of the animal, which is, like, honestly, maybe the best argument for eating more organ meats is that, like, we have a lot of animal product waste. And right now, a lot of it goes into, like, dog food. Yeah. Um, I'm not a vegetarian, but I probably should be. If we're killing animals, we may as well be eating the whole animal right. and putting it to good use as opposed to throwing most of it away. So maybe we need a resurgence. Like, we need another group yeah. like they did in during World War Two to, like, bring it back or to, like... yeah get better facts about it so that people like me aren't like, oh my God, organ meat. <laughs> I mean, organ meat does sound unappetizing. It, it is kind of making a comeback in like high-end restaurants mm-hmm. um, because, you know, people like chefs who, you know, went to train in Italy, like the, you know, traditional cooking involved much more of the animal because you didn't have that many animals. Mm-hmm. It wasn't mm-hmm. easy to come by. Um, so, I mean, if you live near like a butcher and you are a person who eats animals, um, like ask your butcher what bits of the animal they what can what kind of animal is left <laughs> I mean like butchers know like they're very they're intimately familiar with it often butchers like get I think get to take home bits of the animal that like don't sell because people don't want to eat them like and it's cheap very cheap mm-hmm. form of meat because other people don't want them take advantage now before mm-hmm. before we bring back organ meats before Sarah Chodash single handedly brings back organ yeah, meats I'm going to be the new committee on food habits <laughs> So now that I've grossed everyone out, I think we'll take a break and then don't worry, you can come back to some cute dogs. I'm so sorry if I've grossed you out. If you're a vegetarian, I applaud your choices. I wish I could be as strong. All right, we'll be right back. 
It's really easy to get confused by all of the tech news flying around the internet. On Last Week in Tech, the popular science tech team explains everything and tells you how all of these stories affect your daily life. New episodes post every Monday on Apple Podcasts, Google Play Music, SoundCloud, and pretty much anywhere else you can listen to podcasts. We'll talk to you then. All right, we are back for the dogs. We're only here for the dogs. Tell us about the dogs, Lexi. We need some cuteness. This is the lack of dogs. This is dog-free land. This area larger than the United States because it's a whole continent, the continent of Antarctica. Wow. Yeah. I'm giving you a disclaimer in advance that this is a sad journey, but it has a happy ending. So uh, back in the 1980s, the Environmental Protocol, which is this big treaty, international treaty for uh, like protecting Antarctica, said that they were going to kick out all non-native species and but not the, humans. But not humans. We're not. Yeah. We're the worst ones. Yeah. But okay. <laughs> yes. Yes. And so, even before we go into the dog thing, I was like, how do you make laws in Antarctica, which is like a lawless land? Oh, that's land. a good question. Mm-hmm. And it's a lawless land. Yeah. Yeah. And so this treaty, it's really sweet. They said um, Antarctica has been designated as a natural reserve devoted to peace and science. Oh, that's lovely. Wow. I know. I know. So um, in the name of peace and science. They banned the dogs. <laughs> they banned the dogs. Actually for pretty good reason because they were afraid that dogs might transmit diseases like canine distemper to local seals. Oh. Mm. Um, and that's pretty that's a valid concern because distemper is a virus that spreads through sneezing or coughing. Animals get really sick. In wild animals, it often looks like rabies. Um, so, yeah, I wouldn't want, you know, the Antarctic seals to have canine distemper. Yeah. Me neither. No. Yeah. Originally, so I said the dogs are probably happy about being banned from Antarctica because I was looking into the history of, of, of dogs there, and they had a pretty unhappy time, I would say. Um, so, yeah. I mean, yeah, they're not yeah. definitely not designed to be in Antarctica. I don't, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so a lot of people brought them down there as sled dogs. So were they all, like, husky-type dogs, or were they... So, so at first, like, in the first account I could find of dogs in Antarctica is in 1898 and um, they were sled dogs but sled dogs like that's not referring to one breed there's a whole bunch of different breeds that are considered sled dogs Um, and people didn't really know like what breed was best Mm. so that first time um, they brought down the wrong breed of these dogs were used to working in the snow not the ice so a few dogs froze to death um, oh. and died. Oh. Yeah, <laughs> I know, I know. And then a few years later, a German explorer brought a, a good, the right kind of dogs, but <laughs> they had so many dogs that they couldn't bring them all back on their boat, so they had to shoot Wait, what? them. <laughs> How did they get there if they couldn't come on, on oh, the boat? Oh, oh, they had to, so they, like, so they brought a bunch of dogs down there, and then they bred. Oh. They had a bunch of, mm-hmm. of puppies, wow. so, and they couldn't fit them all, which is like how small of a boat are you bringing that you can't yeah, fit yeah a couple dogs more dogs yeah but um but they had to shoot the dogs that's wow. really sad so that was sad and then the real like 
big moment in, in dog history in Antarctica is in 1911 when this dude named Roald Amundsen set out to reach the South Pole. And he um, originally started with 98 dogs, much of which he picked up from Greenland. And on his, but his that first seems like the wrong end of the world. But okay. I know. Well, the Greenland dogs are really hardy, and he's like, I need some okay. hardy dogs down okay. there. All right, that's fair. Yeah, and the Greenland I'm going dogs, to Greenland. Yeah, yeah. going to Greenland Just on the way, picking up my dogs. <laughs> yeah. Detour. Yeah, ninety-eight dogs may seem like a lot to you, and it was. It should have been a hundred and one. I mean, has he seen one hundred and one? Oh, well. Probably not, not. I think. Yeah, I don't think definitely Dal- not. Yeah. <laughs> also, I don't know that Dalmatians would do so well down there. Yes. No, but um, true. but he wanted to bring so many dogs because he was planning on eating them on the oh. way down. Oh, no. <laughs> so, I know. I know this. Goodness. I promise there will Lexi. be like a happy ending at the yeah, app, but oh, it takes God. a while to get okay. there. So anyway, he started. So he had like a uh, expedition failed. He had to turn back. So then the second time he went out, he he took fifty two dogs with him. And only 16 made it down to the South Pole because they were eaten along the way. Like he ate them? Yes. That's so a lot of dogs, dogs to eat. eat. It wasn't just him. Did he feed the dogs to he the other dogs? He better have eaten the organ meat <laughs> and like <laughs> had those like the least amount as possible. Yeah. So he had 15 other men with him and then he was feeding the dogs to the dogs. Wait, why do you need terrible. 15 other people? I'm sorry. I don't know. I don't know. This is so wasteful. Those poor dogs. I know. I know. All I they know. did was love their people. Exactly. Oh I my know. God. I know. More bad. Okay, we have to we have to keep going. We have to press through. We gotta through. get, we gotta get yeah, to the, keep going. the happiness. So then he sixteen dogs to the South Pole. They come back. There's only eleven dogs when they make it back to the to the shoreline. And then I think the rest of those dogs like die on the way home. So only one dog makes it back to Norway. And I have oh a photo oh, of this see dog it. stuffed right here. He's really cute. He looks oh, like man. Oh, what a champion. Go. Look at him. He's like a big bear. Yeah, uh-huh. he does look like a teddy Aww. bear. And he really lived like a king. His name was Aubersten. Oh. And he had a litter of puppies with his girlfriend, Lucy. Oh. And the local butcher would give him big slabs of meat. Whenever he walked by, because he's such a good boy. Yeah, <laughs> and he lived until he was thirteen. So um, oh, that's, a, that's a ripe old age. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So one dog out of ninety-eight. Wow. Does he have any like statues? You know, like there's that. Like well, there's this stuff. Stuffed... in Baldo. Yeah. I don't know if there's a statue. He's in a museum. Wow. Stuffed. Yeah, he's stuffed. Is that I mean, in Norway? Pretty. Legit. I believe so. Yeah. Yeah. So they. I mean, he's like, I think a well-known dog there. Now they're banned completely from Yeah, Antarctica. but that, so this was in 1911. They're, they were banned in 1990. So they were still, like, oh, a so pretty long Okay, history. so it wasn't because of the dogs. It was the concern of the environment. Mm-hmm. It, it wasn't because of these dogs. No, okay. no, no, no. This I just wanted to know about, about the, the, yeah. like, the history of dogs. The history dogs of dogs, yeah. yeah, before they were kicked out. Yeah. yeah. And the craziest dog story I found was from 1957, and this was the first Japanese expedition to overwinter in Antarctica. So they brought 15 dogs with them, Sackhall and Huskies. And I have a picture of those two, and they're also really cute. Look at them. Oh, oh my goodness, so cute. So yeah, they're these big, um, sort of dark, fluffy dogs. And yeah, they have a lot of fur. They're very sweet. So this um, group of people were planning on staying in Antarctica for a year. 
And when they were leaving, um, the second group coming in hit a big storm. So they couldn't they couldn't get there. The second group couldn't get there. And the scientists who were in Antarctica got evacuated by helicopter. And they thought that the, another group was going to come in a few days later after the storm passed. So they left the dogs. They had 15 dogs with them chained up outside with a couple of days worth of food. Outside? Yeah. They couldn't bring them in the building? I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. It actually turned out to be a really good thing that they left them outside. Interesting. Uh, you oh will boy. see. Yeah. So there was this big storm, and the second group was never able to make it, and the window to get into Antarctica is really small. So they were doing this in February. So mm-hmm. then the next group couldn't come, so they um, had to wait a whole year in order oh, to wow. come back. And so they were expecting to find 15 dead dogs when they when they came back. But instead, eight of the dogs had escaped their chains, and so six of them totally disappeared they couldn't find them and they think that they formed like a a dog pack and ate penguins and seals and fish stuck in the ice oh wow um but two of the dogs were there alive when they when they arrived and they greeted them and they were so happy to see them because dogs are the best and so loyal and unconditional in their love how did they survive because they're amazing like, dogs. Oh my God. But they weren't part of the pack, they don't they, think. So they, they probably were. They probably were. <laughs> and then the other dogs were just doing something else. They're not there at the time. Or, or like, died. And, mm, yeah. I see. Or, like, I see. wandered off somewhere. But these two dogs survived mm-hmm, and made mm-hmm. it the whole year in Antarctica by themselves. Yeah. I have a description of the dogs. Their names were Taro and Jiro. And Taro was three years old, and he had a black coat. And Jiro was his brother and had a dark brown coat with a ripple of white on his chest white and white socks. The brothers survived. Yeah. Yeah, so Taro and Jiro stayed in Antarctica to pull sleds for the new expedition. And in 1960, Jiro died of disease of natural cause in Antarctica. And Taro, the next year, returned to his hometown of Sapporo, where he lived for another 10 years. Wow. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, so he, like, lived out his life. And he was totally a national hero. Um, So there's a big statue in Japan of of both those dogs, Taro and Jiro. Uh, And he's in a museum. There's a bunch of movies made about him. I think it's a fairly well-known story within Japan, but Mm -hmm. I had never heard it before. Yeah, Yeah, my friend Charlie told me about it, and I was like, what? (laughs) It's the best dog story ever. That's, That's so crazy. Sweet. Yeah, dogs are such like hearty, hearty stock. Yeah. It's amazing that they are too, like given how much we've bred them just like for, I mean, I, admittedly there's sort of categories like, you know, dogs who are bred to be working dogs or like, you know, bred to be out in mountains um, are going to be much hardier than like little, yeah. little tiny dogs that we've or, just bred for aesthetics. Yeah. yeah. This is Jiro. In the oh, museum. Wow. You Steps should all look this up because these are the cutest dogs. This breed is actually pretty um, endangered, I guess, of, of dying out because there aren't that many of these types of huskies around mm-hmm. anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is that just because there's no demand for to breed them? Because or? Antarctica banned, banned dogs. Them. I don't know if that's the reason. Damn <laughs> <laughs> in Antarctica. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah, so, but I think on the whole, it's probably good because dogs. They had a really rough go there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we probably should stop 
I think it was good that we stopped bringing them. Yeah. Wow. Well, at least that had a happy ending. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just rough getting there. <laughs> yeah, really. All right. So now we have to vote on the weirdest fact. Okay. This is a real hard one for me because I love dogs and I thought that was such a great story. So I, I think I might go with that one. But then organ meats. I think like, definitely organ meats. Yeah. I learned so much about about organs. About organs, same. Like, yeah. and, and I that, feel like it's really kind of changed my mind, like maybe a tiny <gasps> bit, such that like maybe, Sarah, if we were to like make some type of liver thing, I would try a bite. Wow. <laughs> I You don't know how happy that makes me. <laughs> wow. Thank you so much. This is an honor. Yeah. I'm so happy to share my love of organ meats with you all. Yes. Start the campaign. Bring organ meats back. Bring it back. Bring on the meat sweats. <laughs> The Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week is a popular science podcast. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play Music, SoundCloud, or wherever you're listening now. And if you like the show, please rate and review us on iTunes. It helps other weirdos find the show. You can buy our merch, including The Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week t-shirts, tote bags, and mugs at popside.threadless.com. Our theme music was produced by Billy Cadden. Our editor is Jason Letterman. And if you have questions, suggestions, or weird stories to share, tweet us at weirdest underscore thing. Thanks for listening, weirdos.